Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Intrepid Global Citizen podcast. We're here every week bringing you vagabonds, adventurers, and travelers to share their wisdom from the road accrued through hardships of cycling, walking, and sailing the seas through human-powered travel and sustainable ways. If you like the show, please leave review on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. One or two sentences would go a long way for helping the algorithm and helping us bring you more shows every single week. If you also want to support the show, you can pick up my debut book that I'm really excited to tell you about. It's called Unhinged in Ethiopia, 2,000 Kilometers of Hell and Heaven on a Bicycle. It's the story of my 2019 journey for 2,000 kilometers across Africa's most mountainous country. I'm really excited to bring it to you. It's been three years in the making, editing, revising, editing, revising again and again, at least 20 times. Anyway, I hope you really enjoy it. And if you do end up making the purchase, you can find it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or your favorite bookseller. Please tell me what you think about it. I'd love to hear from you. I'm just a debut author who's turning his hobby into a passion here and would like to share my story with you, just like I share everybody else's story on here. So if you'd like to hear my story, pick it up. It's called, one more time, Unhinged in Ethiopia, 2,000 Kilometers of Hell and Heaven on a Bicycle. Thank you. Enjoy this week's episode. Okay, welcome everybody to another episode of the Intrepid Global Citizen podcast. We have a very special guest today. We have Kimberly Coates, who is the CEO of an organization called Africa Rising. So welcome. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I'm just really excited to talk about African cycling. Okay, good. So maybe you could start off by introducing yourself and also introducing your organization, Africa Rising, to our listeners. Yeah, so um, I kind of came about it from a very different background. I um, was a business development manager for a large food distribution company in 2009 in Las Vegas. And I decided to pack up and leave and I headed to Rwanda. And I was only supposed to be in Rwanda three months, but uh, um, I ended up being there eight years. And along with Jock Boyer, we founded Team Rwanda Cycling, which was the national cycling team of Rwanda. And then that eventually morphed into Team Africa Rising because we work in other countries as well. And we have been developing African cyclists for the pro tour since 2007. Wow. Wow. That sounds kind of like my story. I've been or I was originally starting going to stay in South Korea for a year and now it's been 15 years. So you never know what can happen. <laughs> yeah. You can never know. And that was the thing. I think if you just kind of go with the flow, um, amazing things can happen if you're just open to not having a set plan all the time. Yeah. So what was the original like idea behind going to Rwanda? What attracted it to you? I mean, there must have been something because you it's was it a vacation at first? And then you what did you find there? And uh, and what what took you there at first? It was so crazy. So um, 
there was a guy that wrote an article in Outside Magazine in 2008, and it was about Project Rwanda, which Project Rwanda was founded by Tom Ritchie. And he did this project to bring cargo bikes to coffee farmers to help coffee farmers get their coffee beans to market quicker so they can get a higher price, essentially keeping the integrity of the coffee bean. Um, and within that, there was also this fledgling little group of riders who were slowly becoming the national cycling team for Rwanda. Rwanda had had cycling um, in the country uh, pre-genocide. There was the tour of Rwanda. There were some sex successful cyclists, but it really wasn't until 2007 on that it became a real sport. And um, so how I ended up there was crazy because I had written in my journal, I was kind of having a midlife crisis. And I said, I wanted to do three things. I wanted to do something around my love of travel, love of cycling, and I wanted to help people. And I read this article from Jason Gay, who now works for the Wall Street Journal. And it was about Rwanda and what Tom Ritchie and Jock Boyer were doing in Rwanda. And I just read the article. I am like, there it is. There's my fork in the road. And I was cycling with a friend of mine and I told him all about it. And he goes, well, it looks like you need to track down Tom Ritchie and figure out how to get to Rwanda. And so that's exactly what I did. And um, it was probably about three months, four months later. I was on a plane to Rwanda and originally I was just going to help project Rwanda get legal in the country. They hadn't registered their nonprofit. Um, I was there to sell cargo bikes, kind of organize things. And then I just fell in love with the team and I just kept helping Jock and kind of the rest is history. I ended up staying and, here I am, and I'm now married to Jock Boyer. So <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I also ended up with a husband in the deal. <laughs> wow, that's a great story. I really like that. Yeah. Wow. So, wow, that's, that's a, uh, I really enjoy that story. And so how did you get it? How did you become interested in travel and cycling in the first place? I mean, you had that uh, passion, it sounded like, before you even headed out to Rwanda. But how did you get uh, into into those two things? So cycling, um, I'm from the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas City for the most part, born in Chicago, raised in Kansas City. And um, I rode when I was in high school. My first bike was a Bianchi, the down tube shifters. So I'm super dating myself. Um, but I love that bike. And I rode in high school, but it was mostly just for fun. And not like there was a big cycling scene in the Midwest at all in the 80s. So I just like to ride my bike. And then I... I was a runner in high school and college and I was doing longer and longer distances. And then I had an injury and I couldn't shake the injury. And by this time I'm in my thirties and my doctor was like, could you just pick a different sport? So I picked up cycling again. And really for me, I've never raced outside of a couple little local races. 
but I just love the bike. I do my best thinking on the bike. I, I love the feel of the bike. I just, you don't have to tell me to go out and ride. I'll go ride. <laughs> so that's how I ended up there. And then my love of travel is just simply, I'm a Midwestern girl and we didn't go a lot of places. My family wasn't rich. Um, travel was camping uh, generally in the next state. So in Indiana or Missouri, and that was, that was my travel. But in my senior year of high school, I went to Germany and the UK with an exchange program. And that was it. I just, I've always wanted to travel and I always wanted to see the world. And I've always been particularly drawn to the African continent. And the first time I went, I went to South Africa in I think it was 2003 and I went with my sister and fell in love with it so I always wanted to go back and figure out how I could stay oh that's interesting what was it about that trip to South Africa that that was really memorable for you back uh, in 2003 well, yeah well we went on safari so that was amazing I just loved South Africa and I still love South Africa it's one of my favorite countries um the whole time we lived in Rwanda, we'd always go to South Africa. We called it Africa light. Um, so we could, when things got really tough in Rwanda and we went for a stretch without water, electricity, like we could go to South Africa. I could do a spa day, you know, go on safari. It was easy. And, um, but I just, I loved it. I loved the people. I loved the culture. I loved the wildness of South Africa. And to me, I, that's what still draws me. It, the, what draws me to the African continent. Now I mostly work in West Africa, which is a new area for me, for me. I love the, I just love the, the potential. I love the hope. I love what's possible. You can do things in these countries that you could never do in the U S with all our regulations and, you know, rules and whatnot. It's just, and everybody is like so hungry for opportunity and I love it. It's, it's what feeds my soul and it still does to this day. Nice. Nice. Wow. So, so you've been setting up in Rwanda for a while now. So um, I understand Rwanda has kind of turned into a very big place for cycling too. I mean, I've done some cycling myself in Kenya and Ethiopia, but I mean, how is it to, to, for cyclists in Rwanda? You know? Well, I actually left in 2017, so it it's grown a lot. I still am in touch with people in Rwanda, still help Rwandan cycling, um, but it's it, there's all sorts of touring companies now. One of the kids who I love this story talk about potential. Uh, he used to show up at our team house like every couple months. He's like, "Test me, test me," and I'm like, "Oh, sweetheart, you're still not good, and you're never gonna make it as a pro cyclist. But you are super smart and." I know you're passionate about the sport. Have you ever thought about doing something different? Maybe owning a tour company. And so 
Yannick now owns Lava Tours in Rwanda, and he's doing fantastic. In fact, he just sent me a, a message on Facebook the other day, just thanking, thanking me for kind of kicking him out of the nest and telling him to go start a business because now he's quite successful. So there's there's lots of touring companies. There's lots of big races. Um, there's a lot of gravel races. Of course, the Tour of Rwanda. And in 2025, Rwanda's hosting the UCI World Championships road cycling, which is a first for the African continent. Wow. So tell us about the UCI road cycling championship. What kind of race is that? How does it work? Um, well, every year they have the UCI world championships and they're in different places. Um, uh, I'm like trying to blank. Oh, they were in Glasgow this year, Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, next year they're in Switzerland and in 2025 they're in Rwanda. So it's a chance for literally cyclists from all over the world come for the world championships because it's the biggest event to win the world championships and wear the rainbow jersey all year is a huge honor. And Rwanda, Rwanda bid on it. I want to say they bid on it back in the 2020, 2021. And because of the growth of the sport in the country, they got it. it. It had come down to them in Morocco and they gave the bid to Rwanda. So this will be the first time on the African continent, which for Africa, for all the African countries that have cyclists, this is a huge deal because number one, there's no visa issues for African cyclists, um, massive visa issues trying to get to Glasgow, massive visa issues the year before in Australia and just the cost of it is so outside the budget of national federations they can't they can't I mean Glasgow probably costs teams twenty thirty thousand dollars to go to Glasgow for a week and a half of racing so this is huge you're gonna you're gonna see the biggest contingency of African cyclists at a world championships in the history of the sport. So that's exciting. Wow. Yeah, that's great. I mean, just to give them access to all of that, you know, I mean, that's, it's a shame that these tournaments cost or these they, money is such a barrier, right? I mean, Oh yeah. I mean, money's money is generally always the barrier. Yeah, it is. Everything that we do. <laughs> Um, money and, um, visas, those one and two. Yeah. So, wow. It's, it, I mean, how did this get started? I mean, your husband, I'm sure he was starting from nothing from scratch. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and, you know, I've been to some schools in Africa, you know, I'm a teacher and I, you know, I just talk to the teachers and they, ha you know, they have nothing, like you said, in hospitals too, like, they don't have doctors, they don't have equipment, they don't have staff, they don't have anything, right? And teachers, they don't have books, they don't have teachers, they don't have pens, you know, they, they, they're just like, they have nothing. So, I mean, how does one start from nothing? I mean, how did it all, it's just very inspiring what you're, that you've done so much on the, like this. I mean, how does it, how did it all get started? Just one day at a time. Um, we never had a, our goal was never to have Rwanda have the world championships. That was not the goal. I wish I could say like 
our goal was to have Rwanda in the top three in the Africa tour. Our goal was to have the world championships. Our goal was to survive. Um, we generally had three months of cash at any given time before we ran out of money. So we live like that from 2007 to 2014. It was, um, yeah, we just were like, well, we got enough money for another three months. And we, we had some great sponsors early on um, that took a chance on us, like Victoria Tires. Oh my gosh, Rudy, Rudy would send us tires and literally they probably sent thousands upon thousands of tires over the years. And we just begged for everything. And um, Louis Garneau was a big early sponsor and everything pretty much came over in suitcases. Um, those first couple of years, we get a bike, somebody would donate a bike, we'd bring it over. There were some bikes already there, but not a lot. Uh, the turning point really came when the UCI under Pat McQuaid had a program called the Pro Tour Solidarity Program, whereby pro, pro tour teams at the end of the season had to donate a portion of their bikes to developing countries. And because Pat and Jock had actually raced together um, professionally and Pat knew us and knew what we were doing in Rwanda, he, we became one of the beneficiaries of that program for three years. So that was really what helped us. I think our first set of bikes was 2009 or 2010. And, you know, having proper equipment that that helped. And, you know, like I said, sponsors were great. If they didn't give us free stuff, they gave us great discounts on things. And yeah, and we just begged for money everywhere. And we just did it little by little. In 2014, that was another big turning point. We had the Africa Rising Cycling Center. So there was this place up the road from us. We were in a small town. Uh, I should say it's small for Rwanda, but it's still a big town. Um, we were in Musanze, which is up near the Virunga volcano. So in the Gorilla, Mountain Gorilla area. And there was this place that the Austrian company Strabag had built for its workers when they were doing the road between Musanze and Gassendi. And um, it was this beautiful complex and they had left, the road was finished and every day we'd ride by our bikes and we'd just look in the, look in the gate. We'd be like, oh my gosh, if we could just have this center, like we could take off, like we'd have a real center because we were living in two rental houses in town. Like we'd house the team in one house, all the staff would be in another house. It was a disaster. And um we took the minister of sport up there and the federation and we're like, here's our vision. And they said, okay, we'll give it to you. And which was huge at the time because there was a lot of people bidding on the property. The property is worth a lot of money because it's near the mountain gorillas. Um, but they, they said, okay. And I think we had to pay like a nominal amount in rent. And then um, one of our big supporters, Rob Walton from Walmart, he um, he had been supporting us and then gave us a multi-year grant to help us 
build out the center. We built a garage, we upgraded things and it became the Africa Rising Cycling Center, which is still the premier spot for cycling development on the continent. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's an inspiring story to, to come that far. I know every time I think about it, I'm just like, I'm still amazed that everything has happened like that. And it continues to happen because it's always been on a shoestring budget. It's always been just a few people and you know, we just keep chipping away at it. And like I said, there's never been this like multi-year plan. It's like, how do we survive to the next thing? Wow. Wow. It's all about survival. It's amazing what you can accomplish when survival is at stake, right? Exactly. And it's still (laughs) like that. I'm like still looking for money. I'm still trying to find things. So yeah, I mean, it's still the way that it is. Wow. Wow. Interesting. And so I understand I was reading on your website, too, that you have a lot of uh, women cyclists, too, and there's a lot of cultural barriers there. So maybe you could explain that for our, you know, listeners from Europe or North America that haven't visited the African continent yet. Yeah. So there's some great talent on the African continent, men and women. Um as difficult as it is to get men to the pro tour, it's it's even more challenging for women. Um, there's very few races on the continent for women, like professional races. Um, they have a tour of Burundi, crazy enough. Uh, but there's some races in South Africa, but that's it. There's There's nothing there. And culturally it's a really big challenge because, um, in a lot of countries, um, women, if, if women ride the, their parents feel that if they ride a bike, they won't be a virgin. So they won't be able to get married. I've heard stories to us Westerners that are like, what? Um, but this is real. This is, um, families, they either want their, their daughters will be in school, but a lot of times only to a certain point. And then it's like, oh, we got to get married and start having kids. And cause you need your kids to work in the fields with you. And it's always the women. It seems like, especially in Rwanda, that you'll see a woman with a little kid strapped to her back. She's pregnant and she's out in the field and you know, that's their life. And so um, there's not a lot of room for like, oh, my daughter wants to ride bikes. <laughs> that's that's not something that even is considered. And so a lot of times it it's getting better because there's more and more, but even in Rwanda, one of our best female cyclists, she became the first Rwandan to race at a world championships and finish a road race at the world championships. She, she had some really solid talent. Um, and her family didn't want her to race until she started making money. Then they wanted her to race. And then she had an injury that ended up ending her career. And then her family's like, oh, you need to go get a job. And 
So there's just not a lot of support. Whereas like an American kid who wants to try to break into cycling in Europe, he's got mom and dad's credit card and he hits Europe and he's got help. And, you know, at least he speaks English. Granted, you know, they don't speak French in America, but they, but the English will get you by. You know, I have kids speaking all sorts of African, their native African languages. They may or may not speak French or English. Their parents don't have money to send them to Europe. They don't have credit cards. And in fact, I've got two women right now that are up for a scholarship for money specifically earmarked for their development and both of them in the interview said, oh, if I get this grant, I'm going to give some of the money to my parents. <laughs> and the and the grantor's like, she called me. She goes, yeah, we don't want the money to go there. And I go, it's a cultural thing. Like they're expected to do that. So we're not going to give them thousands of dollars. We're going to run the money through you know, there are organizations that help them and let them disperse the funds because especially it's, and this is not just women, this is men too. If the families know that they have money, it's, it's an endless barrage for money. And I mean, our, our top Rwandan writer, Adrian Nianshuti, doesn't even live in Rwanda anymore because the pressure is so great. So as hard as it is for men, they have all those issues. You take all those issues for women and then tack on all the cultural issues around being a woman in Africa and the expectations that go with what you should and shouldn't do. It's, it's an uphill slog for women. Yeah, sure. Wow. And, and how do you find these like cyclists? I mean, are you recruiting? Do they come to you? And like, how does, how does that work exactly? A little of both. Um, so I'm working primarily in Benin now and about a year and a half ago, I was at the former team house in Benin and I was doing some testing. I had uh, I had the Wahoo trainers up. I was doing some Zwift rides and races and like this 15 year old girl shows up and she, she looks like Tennille Campbell, who is a rider from Trinidad and Tobago, um, about six feet tall. And Malvina, my rider in Benin, just shows up and I don't speak French. She doesn't speak English. I basically point to this bike. She gets on the bike. She's wearing shorts and flip-flops and she starts riding and she does 25K on Zwift. Her flip-flops, she eventually kicked off because it didn't work. And she's riding barefoot on SBD pedals. And I'm like, oh my gosh, she's in she's incredible. And she's already gone to the UCI World Cycling Center in South Africa and spent a couple of months there training and she's going to be a junior next year so we're really excited to see you know what happens from there so a lot of them just come like that I mean we're doing this big Zwift Academy right now in Benin I have seven locations the locations have anywhere between two and seven Wahoo trainers 
and I have seven trained coaches, all Beninois people, and they're just kids are lining up at the door just to ride on Zwift. <laughs> so, and as they start to ride, we're like, huh, that one's pretty good. Let's keep an eye on this one. And that's basically how, how it happens. And I've got some major, major talent in Benin right now. Wow. Wow. And that six foot tall woman, would, did she have any experience cycling or did was she just, <laughs> she was just interested in it and she's that, that looks in, that looks fun. Let me try that. And, and yeah. uh, she was good. <laughs> like and just... she, she was good. And so we got her a bike and her dad is a teacher her dad came to the the training house. He he talks to Jock on WhatsApp because um because he doesn't speak English and Jock speaks French, so um they talk and you know because it's always difficult, especially with young women. You know, it's like what is my sixteen year old doing hanging out with all these guys at this house, <laughs> and so. You know, there's, yeah, we got to make sure that the parents are involved, which they always are. And um, yeah, and what was crazy about it too is representation is so important. So when when I was in Benin last, which was just in, in October, so last month, um, Melvina, the girl was there. And I showed her videos of Tennille Campbell. And she looked at me because Melvina, like all my junior girls are just tiny. They're like five, one, five, two, itty bitty girls. And then here's Melvina. She's this tall, skinny as skinny as a rail, just very regal presence. And I think sometimes she feels awkward and so I showed her videos of Tennille Campbell who races for a pro team, uh, Alula, Alula Jaco. And she was just like, Oh my God, she looks like me. And I go, she does. And she's tall like you. And it's amazing what representation can do. And that's why it's so important to get these kids out there because I saw it happen in 2015 at the Tour de France. Daniel Teclahamanat from Eritrea was racing for MTN Quebec with Merhawi Kudus. First, first time two Eritreans raced the Tour de France ever. And Daniel got the King of the Mountain jersey on, I don't know, stage seven, eight, somewhere in there. And he held it for a few days. The second Daniel got that jersey, I was watching it. I was in Rwanda. We're all around the the MacBook Pro, all looking at the race. And all the riders went, oh, my God, I can do it. Like, because they saw someone that looked like them, they knew Daniel. They'd raced against Daniel at the Continental Championships. They knew Daniel came from, you know, a mud hut on a dirt floor with no electricity. And the second Daniel did it, everybody just went, I can do it. And that continued for several years. And it kind of, we didn't have a lot of success after that um, until Biniam Gourmet showed up. And when Biniam Gourmet 
first got a silver at the world championships in the U23 race. And then when he um, won the stage at the Giro, like all of a sudden the belief level went up again. So that's so important. These kids need to see people who look like them came from where they came from so that they know that they can do it. That's a big deal. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It just takes, you know, one example, you know, and you can shatter your limiting beliefs. I mean, that's, that's really inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we just got to find more kids to keep paving the way. Yeah, sure. Sure. Wow. And I was, I was reading also on your bio that you've coached some Olympians too. So what, I mean, tell us about that. So Adrian Nianshuti was our first Olympian in 2012. He went to London and he raced the um, uh, cross-country Olympic mountain bike race. He was the first Black African to ever finish that race. I think he's still the only Black African who, I think he still holds that distinction. Um, And then in 2016, he went to Rio on the road and raced road. He didn't finish that race. Unfortunately, he had a mechanical fairly early on the race. And um, they've Rwanda has been in the um, Olympics then since 20, they did 2020. They, I don't think they qualified a man for 2024. Um, there's, there's been, other writers were hopeful that we will get a wild card for Benin. We're waiting to see. Um, but Rwanda has qualified, which is a big deal, is to qualify. Um, another great writer, um, Paul Dumont from Burkina Faso, uh, did the 2020, which was ended up being 2021 Olympics. And... Um, he was one of the guys in that breakaway. I think there was a breakaway of like 10 or 12 riders for a big portion first half of the race. And he was there along with um, Nicholas Delomini from South Africa. Okay. Wow. Nice. And then, uh, and then, so you guys, you were also doing this during COVID, right? So what was, how was it uh, coaching during COVID? Um. You know, sometimes the worst things that you think of, like this is the absolute worst thing that could happen to us right now, turns out to be the best thing that happened to us. And that was, so in COVID, we couldn't travel, we couldn't do all the classes and coaching, we couldn't be in Benin or Sierra Leone or all the places that we had scheduled to go. And that's when the virtual training that's that's when we really started investing in that. And that has been a huge game changer. Um, like I said, there's there's hundreds of kids in Benin right now that I can get data, like I'm getting data every day on these kids. So I know their watts, I know their FTP, I know how long they can hold X amount. You know, it's it's so much faster to find riders now as opposed to how we used to do it which was maybe if we had a testing program that we could do and then you know the the beauty is even like doing the wahoo 
or Zwift, you know, we can practice shifting with them. We can do all these things that you can't do on the road. And the learning curve is just boop. <laughs> it's just gone straight up and, and they figured it out so quickly. And so now we have mass amounts of data and it really has the virtual platforms have really democratized the sport. It is brought it is brought it to the African continent where they can compete with people that all over the world that are better than they are, that have more experience, that are some of the top riders in the world, and they can go toe to toe with these people and see see where they stand. So yes, I mean, we still need more legitimate races on the African continent. We still need way more development, more coaches, more mechanics, more everything, more equipment. But this is this has helped us move forward so much more quickly. And it's it's been a game changer. So thank you, COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh it can be a blessing in disguise sometimes, right? They call it the great accelerator, yeah. you know, to make that's, everything virtual. Ex- yeah, and that's exactly what happened. It's just like COVID just you know put fuel on a fire and we took off and we since 2020 we've probably put over 130 trainers across seven different countries and we have programs in all those countries whereby they're we're capturing data and um getting to know which riders are coming up through the system okay interesting Wow. And so this is so when you're working with these athletes that don't have I mean, I can imagine there's no sports background at all. It's about survival for a lot of these families and the, the, the kids that come to you. So how what's that like? I'm sure there's a big learning curve about nutrition, about, you know, pushing yourself and it's OK to be tired. And and it's you yeah. know, I mean, what's that like? I mean the motivation and, and the, and just, I mean, where do you start and, and how do you find, uh, what, what are the challenges there and how do you overcome them? Well, our biggest challenge is equipment, trying to get equipment. Um, Benin just invested in 28 new Scott bikes, which we're all using on Zwift. So we know that they work. Um, cause some of the equipment, some of the bikes are in such bad shape that they don't even work on, on the Wahoo trainers. Um, so the equipment's the biggie. Um, once we get them sorted on equipment, then nutrition is another issue that we address. Um, because we have to find gains wherever we can, because with African riders, we're already behind um, because they haven't grown up like kids in Belgium or France or Holland. And so as far as motivation, crazy enough, I think it's kind of universal. Um, I have kids in Africa that have not been motivated and I'm like, okay, next, like my job is not to motivate you. If you want it, I'm here. I will I will open the door for you. I will kick down the door for you, but you got to walk through the door. I'm not going to drag you through the door. And 
you know, I've left, I've left kids behind because they weren't motivated. And here's the deal. There's like thousands of other kids that are motivated. So I don't care how great your numbers are. If you're not coachable and you, if you aren't self-motivated and really, really want it, then I'll go with somebody who has less talent, but is more motivated and will do all the things that they need to do. So nutrition is huge. Um, We always have to look at what is available on the ground um, because the way we eat in America and what we have access to, which is actually quite horrible (laughs) in the big scheme of things in America, um, but we have lots more to offer. And so generally what I do is I... I just go through markets and I figure out, okay, what do we got? What can we work with? What will give them the carbs? What'll give them the protein? Um, protein, like they they don't eat a ton of meat because it's really expensive. And so we eat a lot of eggs. Um, so I just find ways around it and do the best with what we have. And I bring kids in the kitchen and I'm like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to cook today. I have found recipes on how to make bars for riding. It's not like you rock up to your local bike shop in Cotonou and buy a thing of cliff bars. They don't exist. So we make our own, you know, bars. We make our own race food. Um, yeah, we eat a lot of bananas on the bike. A lot of bananas and a lot of dates in Benin. They're like the perfect food. But it's just a matter of looking at what you have to work with and making it work within within the system. Okay, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I would say, you know, like just being in, you know, Africa and Ethiopia and Kenya, it's uh, the food there is is much better than the standard American diet, <laughs> you know, with uh, there's a big uh, beans and rice culture and spinach, <laughs> avocados in Kenya. And then the injera is, you know, packed with so many nutrients in Ethiopia, as you probably have heard about. Yeah, so Ethiopian food and plus it's so good. Um, I know, yeah. <laughs> I know. I've I've had a little harder time in Benin, um but then I just I found I found like black eyed peas in the market. I'm like, "Oh my gosh, you guys have black eyed peas. These are great." And so yeah, we use a lot of beans, a lot of rice. Um yeah, just whatever we have. They have peanut butter out the wazoo in Benin. It's crazy. So like everything gets peanut butter. <laughs> okay. There you go. Yeah, there you go. Slice. And it's, it's the good kind. <laughs> okay. Slice yeah. of North America on the other side of the world, right? Exactly. Except it doesn't have the high fructose corn syrup and oh, the yeah. other garbage. Yeah. Even better. There you go. <laughs> yeah. It's just ground peanuts. Go figure. Yeah, yeah. Nice. And um, let's see. So you're the CEO of this organization. I was looking at your website and um, I noticed you were stressing a lot of times that that uh, you're looking for people that put cyclist needs first all mm-hmm. the time. So I'm wondering what are the leadership challenges just dealing with people in this culture that's so different? 
you know, people working for you and, and everything and working alongside others. Well, when we, when we lived in Rwanda and we ran Africa rising cycling center, um, we had a pretty big budget at the time and a pretty big staff. We had, Oh gosh, probably 10 or 15 Rwandans on staff. Um, mostly house help, like cooks, cleaners, gardeners, because we had our big, uh, huge organic garden, um, mechanics. I had Rwandan mechanics and a couple of Rwandan coaches. Um, the biggest challenge was just like a lot of people, especially when we were in Rwanda and we were getting so well known, people wanted to come over and like, I stopped taking volunteers, um, because volunteers, mostly wanted to just take selfies with the team and not actually do the work that they were supposed to do. Um, now that being said, I have like my greatest volunteer, a guy who took a sabbatical from this law firm in the UK still does all my social media and, and does all this amazing stuff for us in the UK and Europe. And he, he was such a blessing, but you know, I've had a lot of people that like the idea of coming along, but then they get there and they're like, holy crap, this is a whole lot of work. And I'm like, what did you think we were doing here? And, you know, but we learned to weed through people. And I have such a great group of people now, like um, we're running a mechanics course this week in Benin. And I have two mechanics there. Um, one mechanic, Jamie Bissell, just finished up last year. He was the mechanic for the women's EF TIBCO team. So world tour women's team. And prior to that, he was um, the mechanic for USA Cycling. And before that, he was our mechanic in Rwanda. So incredibly talented, very knowledgeable. And he's in Benin and um, he's working this week uh, with all the mechanic trainees. And then I have another mechanic, Stephen Leger, who used to work for team Europe car. And these guys, you know, I pay their expenses. Um, we get them there and they just do it because they want to help and they love it. Um, Adrian Yanshuti is now our national coach for Benin. Um, he is the most experienced African cyclist. He's the only Rwandan to ever race at the world tour level um, on a world tour team. And he, he understands and he has such credibility with the kids because they look at Adrian and they know Adrian did it. So they listen to him, they follow him, they love him. Um, yeah, those kids are super lucky to have him in, in Benin. Oh, wow. Interesting. So, all right. So I understand the, your organization is always also supporting cycle tourism in Africa. So, or on the continent. So how is the state of cycle tourism? How would you describe it there? So, like I said earlier with, um, Yannick in, uh, Rwanda, we just, we just try to draw attention to all the options that are out there because we think it's great if, people come and visit these countries and see that like places like Rwanda, places like Kenya, Uganda, they're safe and 
the writing is great. And so, you know, we promote, uh, I have another uh, former writer who has a touring company as well, Rafiki Bike. And like, I have donors who went to Rwanda and they wanted to ride. And I'm like, well, here you go. I'll hook you up with Rafiki and you know, you're, you're going to have the experience of a lifetime. So we don't like financially support any of these companies. We just draw attention to opportunities because we want to make sure that we give back to the local communities to allow these people to make money, to have access and, um, because it's good for everybody. If people come and they see Rwanda, or they see Uganda, and they're like, wow, this is amazing. Um, maybe they ride with some cyclists who are coming up through the system. That just draws attention to all the work that we're doing. So it's just a win-win for everybody. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's that's great. And so, so for somebody that's listening to this, that's interested in helping you, I mean, what can they do? How can they contact you? Um, the best, the best way to find out more about us and to contact us is through our website, which is teamafricarising.org. And, uh, we also are all over social media. So all the links are on our website. So that's probably the best place to start. Um, We always need help with funding. That's always vitally important, especially this time of year, as you know, we wrap up things for 2023. You can donate directly off our webs on our website. And we are a U.S. based nonprofit. So, uh, yeah, if you're an American, then you can get your tax deduction by donating to us. So keep that in mind for the end of the year if you need a tax deduction. <laughs> yeah, or it's a nice Christmas present, too. I find it's always great to, you know, make a donation in somebody's name. Absolutely. You know, as opposed Absolutely. to... I mean, we have so in the United States, like we kind of mentioned, I mean, we have everything there and, uh, you know, material wise. And uh, mm-hmm. you always end up with a lot of stuff but in that you that uh, you don't need in the end end of things, yeah. you know. So it's it's nice just to make a donation for somebody that's, you know, passionate about cycling, you know, and uh, in a country, you know place that really needs it so Mm -hmm. exactly and you know um a lot of times people ask well can i send equipment or jerseys we we actually have a lot of jerseys in benin we just got a huge shipment from usa cycling um what we need is money i mean we we need money to buy parts because we don't take used parts because if they're not working on your bike, they're not going to work on our bikes. So, um, you know, it costs money to keep all these bikes. We did a big push to help Benin pay for these Scott bikes and we got 27 bikes and it was like 13, $14,000, but it's a game changer. Um, yeah. So, and something simple, $50 a week pays for a kid to go to a training camp for a week. So every bit matters. And whether you can donate $10 or $10,000, it all matters. 
Yeah, yeah, and I think that's something our listeners need to, you know, understand too. That fifty dollars it might not seem like a lot of money for somebody in the United States. You can go out and get a meal for that price, you know, at a restaurant exactly. with two people nowadays. But I mean, just think about if you sacrifice that restaurant meal and how much that could provide for for somebody in in Rwanda or Benin or on the other mm -hmm. side of the world, you know, so exactly, exactly. And you make a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, great. So tell us before you wrap up here about uh, being the 2022 Biz Bike Woman of the Year. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, you know, what makes me so proud of that award is that it was voted on by the public. And what it did is like, I don't personally care about the accolades but it drew a lot of attention to the work that we were doing, which then drew donations, drew support, you know, drew exposure for the work that we're doing there, which is ultimately what matters. So, yeah, I was I was very honored because there was there's always so many amazing people in the industry and especially being a woman let's let's face it the bike world is is still pretty male and so um i'm one of the few women doing this work at this level on the african continent um most of the federations are all men most of the teams are men um so i'm glad that i got the recognition but we need hundreds more of me's <laughs> in the system and we need women we need women at the the highest levels in the sport at the administrative levels of the sport we need women in the federations we need women ds's we need and not just ds's for women's teams we we just need more women at the highest levels of the sport in order to really develop across the board and that's true whether it's african cycling or all of cycling yeah sure Great. Well, congratulations on that. It seems like it's well-deserved and uh, you're doing great things on, on the Thank African you. continent, uh, bringing bikes to to children and giving them, you know, hope for the future. I mean, it's it, another thing to remember is, you know, a lot of these kids are born into very tough lifestyles without much hope. And if they can see a bike and get excited about it and work hard at something, you know, that's life changer right there Absolutely. right Absolutely. I mean yeah. you you look at like when we started Jock always said he goes if I change one person's life it will have mattered and we did that with Adrian 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 is going to go so much further than we were ever able to take African safely because he's African, because he's Rwandan. He did it. He made it. And now he's giving back. And right now we're having this, this group of like, I call them the first generation of successful African cyclists, uh, Adrian Nienshuti, Natnel Berhan from uh, Eritrea, uh, Skabu Grame from Ethiopia. These guys are starting to retire and they are going to be the next generation of leaders, which is perfect because 
it needs to be run by these guys. They're African. They did it. They know the system. And yeah, that's what it's all about. You don't need you don't need a white woman from Kansas running your African cycling program forever. It needs to be run by Africans. So I'm just excited about the future. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Nice. Yeah. All right. Well, maybe we can wrap up here. We've gone for about an hour. So thank you so much for joining us. And, thank you for uh, having me. Yeah. And uh, get your family a Christmas donation by donating and uh, check out Africa Rising. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you liked it, please go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or any podcast app where you're listening to this podcast and leave a review. One or two sentences would go a long way and it will help the algorithm to reach new viewers, discover the show. And if you want to help me further, you can go to Amazon.com or Barnes and Nobles or your favorite bookseller and purchase my book. Unhinged in Ethiopia, 2,000 kilometers of heaven, of hell and heaven on a bicycle. And if you do like it, just please leave a review, one or two sentences, of course, or more. And I'd love to connect with you and hear what you have to say. If you know somebody that wants to have their adventure story told on this show, please contact me at the email address listed here george at intrepidglobalcitizen.com that's george at intrepidglobalcitizen.com once again thank you always for your support and we'll see you at next week's show